This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, uh, to a couple of scriptures, Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll give you uh, tax for that just in a moment. Ephesians 3, 1 Corinthians 4. Now, all of us face common problems, challenges in our daily lives. They may be job-related, may be health-related, they may be finance-related, they may be relational or situational, uh, but just all kinds of difficulties and stuff that we go through. And for the most part, this is just part and parcel of daily life, isn't it? It's the lot of all men who lives in a fallen world. Job says, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward, was his quaint way of putting it. And Jesus says in the word, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He says, therefore, do not worry, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So no one, there are no exceptions to this, no one goes through life unscathed. Things happen, such as the common lot of every single one of us. However, once in a while, occasionally, not often, but now and again, something happens to us that is beyond our understanding. Things happen that we can see no rhyme nor reason for it. It usually comes unexpectedly. It certainly is unwelcome. And often it feels terribly unfair. It may leave us puzzled or confused, or if we're not careful, bitter or angry, grieved or aggrieved. However, in those times, especially in those times, we need to realize that there is a bigger picture. And there's a bigger God who's got bigger answers and bigger purposes. So we need to understand that beyond our knowledge, beyond our seeing, beyond our natural Life, there's things happen occasionally that has got bigger consequences, bigger ramifications. Let me just read these couple of scriptures that I ask you to turn to to try to get you to understand what I'm saying. Ephesians 3, uh, 10 and 11. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, and this particularly, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord." And then 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last 
as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, Paul here is uh, alluding uh, to the days when he lived, particularly in the Roman Empire, that in their amphitheaters and in their colosseums, they would have blood sports, gladiatorial fights, and so forth. But at the end of those particular sports days, in order for the crowd to go home happy, in order for the crowd to feel that this has been a great day, they would take criminals and especially Christians and they would throw them to the lions. And people would watch them being killed by wild animals and they would clap and they would cheer and they were made a spectacle. And Paul said about the apostles, especially here, Paul said, it's as if we're kept last as a spectacle to men and to angels. And God is telling us here that behind the scenes of our lives that sometimes there's a drama being played out and God is showcasing us to the heavenlies, to men and to angels. He puts us on display. The world hates us. The demons fear us. Angels wonder about us. And so from time to time, there's something happens in the heavenlies that is beyond what we can see and what we can understand. Someone called this, I don't know who it was, but someone called this, this idea a battle point in the heavenlies. Where you become a battle point in the heavenlies. Where there's something in the heavenlies taking place and you're the battle point for it. You're the, you're the lightning rod, as it were, for it. And you may not understand that at the time. You may wonder what in the world is going on, what's happening. But it's beyond your, your understanding at that moment. There's something happening in the heavenlies. Let me uh, show you this in Luke chapter 22. Verse 31, Jesus speaking to Peter. Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now understand that whenever Jesus called Peter Simon, uh, he either was about to feel, or he just had failed. He was reminding him of his old name, his old nature. Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It has been said that we admire Paul, that we revere John, but we love Peter. Probably because Peter was the one who made the most mistakes. The one who was so transparent. His life is before us the one who denied Jesus, uh, the one who took his sword out when Jesus was being arrested in the garden and tried to cut the head of one of the guards. 
You know, the, the one who said to Jesus, though all these will forsake you, I'll never forsake you. I'll even die for you. And then, of course, he went on to deny Jesus. And so, in a sense, Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to be a battle point in the heavenlies. Satan has asked for you. Now, Peter was impulsive. He, he made lots of mistakes. He was big-headed. <laughs> he wasn't a very humble man in early on in his Christian experience, but he became a great man and a mighty preacher. And on the day of Pentecost, he was the one who preached to the Jews and the gospel net went out and 3,000 got saved. Later on, he was the one who preached to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. And again, the gospel net went out and that began a, a tremendous evangelization of the Gentiles. In the first half of the book of Acts, he's the main man. But right now, he's becoming a battle point in the heavenlies. And Satan desired to sift him as wheat. Satan wanted to destroy this man. Now, we don't know why exactly, but maybe, maybe Satan saw the potential in this man. He was a natural leader. And maybe Satan understood that once God gets the hold of this fellow really right and works on him, he, he's, going to be, he's going to damage my kingdom. And so he sought to sift him as wheat. And you know the story so well how that he did actually deny Christ and, and went through a very difficult period where Satan was sifting him as wheat. But thank God he came through that. Uh, thank God he became a, a mighty man of God. Uh, and what a blessing to the church. And, and, and we feel we can identify with him because of his mistakes and his humanity. You know, when you look at the life of Paul, you say, well, I can never measure up to the mighty Paul. And you look at John, the beloved disciple, you say, well, I never could get as close to Jesus as John ever was. But when you see Peter, then, well, he's like me, he's made loads of mistakes, but there's hope for him. There's hope for me because of what happened to him. But Peter became that battle point in the heavenlies. And sometimes we become that lightning rod. And, and sometimes maybe it's the enemy wants to sift us as wheat. But Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Peter failed, for sure. But his faith didn't fail. In the end, that deep down inner belief about Jesus didn't fail. And when he came through all of that, he was a much, much better man, much, much stronger, much, much mature man than he'd ever been. You remember, well, you, again, you know the story so well. You remember David and how that one day he woke up and he was, his father says, look, David, he was just a little shepherd boy. He says, look, I want you to take these cheeses and bread out to your three brothers who are out there in the battlefield at Ephesdamon. And you remember how in the battlefield, how the, the, the two armies was lined up once against each other. Uh, the, the army of Israel on one side, the army of the Philistines on the other side. And Goliath of Gath, that great big nine, ten foot giant of a monster of a man, with a spear like a weaver's beam, he would go out morning and evening and bellow 
to the, across the valley to the Israelites and say to them, I'm the champion of Gath. Send out a man that we may fight. Just one man to take me on. And if I win, you'll serve us. And if you win, we'll serve you. And this was going on for days and days and days. And it was a standoff. And nobody in Israel would take him on. Not Saul, who was head and shoulders above all the men of Israel, the Bible says. Not Jonathan, who was a mighty warrior. No one would dare to take this man on. And so the very honor of God was at stake because he was defying the armies of the living God. And nobody would pick up the challenge. And so David woke up that morning. His dad sent him on an errand, had no idea in the world what he was heading into, other than a natural curiosity of seeing the battle. But he had no idea that he was going to be a battle point in the heavenlies, that he was going to be the lightning rod for God, that he was the one who was going to be put on the spot. And oftentimes things happen to us all of a sudden. You wake up one morning and suddenly something happens you never imagined a million years could happen unexpectedly, unwelcome. But it's there, it happens. And so David goes out and he hears this giant roaring and bellowing, challenging. And if I can paraphrase for you, he said, why is nobody dealing with this? Why has nobody taken this man on? He couldn't believe it. And then he said to Saul, you remember what he said? He says, I'll take him on. Oh, you're too small, you're too young, you're too weak, you're too this. No, no, he says, no, I fought a lion and a bear. I'll take him on. Well, put my armor on. He tried that. Yeah, he can't even walk in this. It's just too big. I just need my slingshot and five stones. That's all I need. And you remember how he went out, didn't he? He slung that stone, hit him in the forehead, and he fell like a great big oak. And David ran over and took Goliath's sword and cut the head off and brought it back to Saul, held it up. And what a mighty victory there was that day. And those Philistines were in disarray. Their champion, Goliath of Gath, was dead before their very eyes. Huh. And there's David, a battle point in the heavenlies. Didn't go out that morning to do this. Just went out on an errand for his dad. But when he got in the middle of it, something rose up within him. Righteous indignation. Why is this happening? Why isn't somebody dealing with this? And he won a great and mighty victory for the honor of God and for the nation of Israel. And what a great king he became, the greatest king that Israel ever had. In Judges chapter 6, it tells us about Gideon. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was whenever Israel had sown 
Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel and said to them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, not of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice, which is why they were in the trouble they were in. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiasrite, while the son, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Normally it'd be threshed in the open, but to hide it from the Midianites and went down into the into the winepress. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." And Gideon said to him, "O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us?" Where are all his miracles, which your fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Go on this, your might. Whether that's because God knew that he would be a strong man and a great soldier, or whether the might was because he knew the state of the land and he knew why they were in that state. And because he knew that, he knew the times he was living in. Lots of Christians do not know the times they're living in. They're oblivious to what's going on around them, even in the country. But he knew. And he knew where they were and he knew why they were there. So maybe that was the might that God was depending on. He would give him the strength that he needed, give him the wisdom he needed, give him the power that he needed. But he needed a man who understood why they were in the mess they were in and that would stand up. And of course, even after being told twice that God was with him, he, he still put out two fleeces just to make absolutely sure. And then he raised up a great army, 32,000 of several tribes of Israel. But it was only about one-seventh of the tribes that was mentioned there, if you read on. But there was 32,000. And God says, no, it's too many. I'll not get any glory with that number. So ask them, whoever is afraid to go to battle, now's the time to turn back. <laughs> and 22,000 turned back. Can you imagine that? I'm sure his heart sank. And God says, 
10,000, it's too many. Get them to go down to the river and tell them to take a drink. And whoever laps like a dog and whoever gets on their knees, I'll tell you which ones to use. And the ones who lap like a dog, the ones who scoop their hand in and licked it with their tongue and looked left and right to see if there's enemy about. But then the other ones, they get down their hands and knees and put their face right into the water. He says, the ones that lap like a dog, he says, I'll use them. And there was only 300. And 32,000 to 300. Because God was going to get the glory in this battle. He's going to use Gideon. But God was going to get the glory. Gideon never imagined in a million years that morning when he was thrashing wheat in the wine press, afraid of the Midianites. Never imagined in a million years that he was going to be a battle point in the heavenlies. That God was going to raise him up to win a great battle against the Midianites. So you're getting the picture. You're beginning to understand what I'm saying today. That there will be times when you'll be a battle point. And it may not be for a whole nation, like Gideon, or like Deborah even, which we haven't time to go into. It, it may not even be like Peter, who became the great giant in the first half of the book of Acts. But it may be a bit like Job. Let's have a little look at Job just for a moment or two. Job chapter 1. I know you're familiar with these stories, but just have a little look. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Not sinless, but blameless. One who feared God and shunned evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Anybody that's got sons and daughters needs to pray for them regularly. Amen, parents? Amen. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Job is about to become a battle point in the heavenlies, and he doesn't know it. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. And sometimes we don't even want to think this. And sometimes it goes against a lot of people's theology. God highlighted Job to Satan. 
It wasn't Satan who had Job to God. It was God who had Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. An upright man who eschews evil. Have you thought about him? Peter says the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So God says, well, what about my servant Job? Have you even considered him? Well, sure he had. He had considered him all right. But he didn't feel he could do anything with him. Because he goes on to say, so Satan answered and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Ah, sure I've considered him. If it had been you put a big hedge of protection around him, I can't get at him. Look at how you blessed him. That's why Job serves you. Now you see, among the many things this book highlights for us, one of them is, and it's a key point, is will a man serve God for not? If a man is stripped of everything, will he still serve God? Or is he only in it for the blessing? Does he only serve God because of what he's going to get out of it? Or is he going to serve God for nothing? Just for God's sake? That's what the devil's saying. And he may be saying that about us too. Hmm. Sure, they're farewell-er Christians. When everything's going well, they'll praise God, they'll come to church, they'll read their Bibles, they'll have a wonderful time. But let the first thing happen to them and they'll be disappeared like snow of a ditch. Do you ever wonder maybe he's making that accusation against us? Hmm. But now he says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Oh, so you think Job's a great man. Well, just, just, just take some of the blessing away. Let, let's see how he fares. I tell you, he'll curse you to your face if you do it. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. That's why he was praying for them every day, by the way. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from the heaven, from heaven, and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people. They are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Ha! Huh. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord 
Note this, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And so Job wakes up one morning, the sun is shining, he's fabulously wealthy, he's got a big family, he's loads of servants, he's cattle, he's sheep, he's oxen, he has everything that a man could ever desire. And within one day, everything is gone. In one day. In less than 24 hours, everything he ever owned, everything he ever had, even his own family are gone. Will he still serve God? Will he collapse? Will he do what his wife said, curse God and die? No, he says. Naked I come into the world, naked I go out. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He had no idea there was a devil working behind the scenes. He hadn't got a clue about any of that. We got it because we can read it. He didn't. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says he worshipped. Would we feel like worshipping if you woke up tomorrow morning and everything you ever owned or ever had and all your family were gone? Would you feel like worshipping? But Job did. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from, when, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all, the man, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot shred, a piece of broken pottery that is, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Boy, how do you like be married to that? Eh? <laughs> Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill one time, Winston, she says, if I was your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. He says, Lady Astor, if I was your wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> if I was your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> But he said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, little did he know that he'd become a lightning rod in the heavenlies. God on one side, the devil on the other. And him in the balance. And God said to the devil... Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> have you? Yeah, I have, but can't do anything about it. Okay, I'll give you permission to do something about it. But I'm putting you on a leash so that you can only go so far and no further. But I'll give you permission. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. I have confidence that he'll come through this. 
And so we see the story. <laughs> you know, Job was just a man. He didn't understand what was all going on. All he knew was he loved God and just served God all his life. That's all he knew. Didn't know the devil was striking him all the rest of it. Didn't know anything about the devil. But he knew about God. And so in verse 20 of chapter 7, after his, his miserable comforters came and gave him such a hard time and blaming him and all the rest of it, then Job, just being a human being, says, Have I sinned? I, all along he's been saying, I haven't sinned. I, I'm not perfect, but I know this is, I haven't done anything to deserve this. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? <laughs> you know, saying, God, I feel, like, I feel like you put a big target on my back and everything that possibly could go wrong is just pointing at me. Why, why have you set me as a target? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Why is this happening? It's very human, isn't it? To ask yourself when things are going wrong, why is this happening? And he was no different. And even though we know more than him, because we've got the whole Bible to read, and even though we're in a different dispensation, Yet it's human nature to ask, why is this happened? Why has this happened? Why is this happening? But what was happening was God was showcasing him to the enemy and letting the enemy know and letting us know that sometimes stuff happens and it's nothing to do with us other than we're a battle point in the heavenlies. And something's being played out beyond our understanding. Hmm. So what do you do in those times when you become that battle point, that lightning rod? What do you do in those times? And we'll go quickly. First of all, trust in the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign. Job said in chapter 13, 15, you don't need to turn to it. He says, though God slay me, I will trust him. And in 23, 10, he says, when he has tested me, I shall then come forth as gold. Though God, even if he slays me, I'll trust him. And when I do, I'll come forth as gold. What an attitude. Didn't understand that what we understand. Didn't have the background knowledge that we have today. All he knew was, I don't know what's going on, but God, somehow you're in the midst of all of this. And my life is in your hands. And even if you're to kill me, I'll still trust you. And I'll come out the other end as gold. Sometimes you just have to trust the sovereignty of God when you don't know what's going on and you're not getting the answer. You know, you read through the book of Job, God never told Job what was happening. He didn't say you're a battle point in the heavenlies. I'm showcased you, I've singled you out. Didn't tell him anything. And sometimes we don't fully understand or know what's going on, but we've got to trust God in the midst of it and trust his goodness and his faithfulness. Trust the sovereignty of God. 
Apostle Paul, he understood this well enough. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're almost finished. Verse 6, towards the end of the chapter, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction... When you read what Paul came through, how in the world he could call that light affliction, I do not know. For light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. The last thing we think when we're in a difficult situation or a crisis, the last thing we ever think is this is working for me. We always think this is working against me, don't we? Let's be honest. But Paul never thought that. Whatever happens to me, he says, I'm in God's hands, so therefore if God's involved in my life, it's working for me. What a different attitude. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why do we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen? For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What a difference that makes. Whenever you see that God is involved in your life and that God is sovereign and that we can trust him. Paul says that all things work together for good. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good to those that are called, for those that are called to the very purposes of God. Secondly, trust in the confidence of God. What do you mean, David? Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. <laughs> Simon, I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to deny me. I know the rooster's going to crow. I know you're going to be humiliated. I know you're going to feel you're useless. You're desperate. You're hopeless. You're a waste of time. I know all that as ahead of you in the next 24 hours. I know you're going to be so ashamed. But when you have returned, see the confidence that the Lord had in Peter? that he would return. Why? Because he prayed for him, that his faith wouldn't fail. Sometimes we pray and we have much confidence that prayer is going to be answered, but every prayer Jesus prays, he's fully confident it's going to be answered. And when he prayed for Peter, he had not a doubt that that prayer would be answered and that Peter would return. Did he return? Absolutely. And how he returned. <laughs> See him on the day of Pentecost. Well, he has arrived now, isn't he? He's returned okay. Mighty man of God. But the Lord had confidence that he would return. Used with backslidden children and backslidden siblings, backslidden relatives, pray for them that they will return. And pray that they will come again and back to the family of God to where they're supposed to be. 
and pray with some assurance and authority. Trust in the confidence of God. Had David confidence in Gideon? Yes. Had he confidence in Job? For sure. Had he confidence in David? Absolutely. Confidence in Peter? Yes. And maybe the Lord is allowing something for you to go through because he has confidence that you'll come through it. And you'll come through it strong, better than you ever went into it because he's praying for you. He's at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. Trust in the love of God. You see, when you're going through stuff, the enemy loves to whisper in your ear, God doesn't really love you. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. If he really loved you, this would not be happening. Where did that come from? Did he not love Job? Did he not love Peter? Of course he did. Did they go through some stuff? Absolutely. But God's love never changed for them. And his love never changes for us. Steady, constant, faithful. Trust in the love of God. So maybe today, just once in a while, because I don't want us to spiritualize everything and have demons in every creak of the door, but once in a while, stuff happens to us that's beyond the normal. Normal, beyond the normal lot of life of all men, believers and unbelievers alike. And maybe, maybe at that time, maybe at that place, we've just become a battle point in the heavenlies, a lightning rod. And maybe there's that battle in the heavenlies between the enemy and between God. And we're going to win because one with God's a majority. And when God's on our side, we can't lose. Sure we can't. We may have to suffer a little while, but we can't lose. Read what Paul went through at the end of it. He says, I've run my race. I've finished my course. He says, hence the fourth there's light up for me, a crown of righteousness. You know, at the end of the day, no matter what I've gone through, Paul says, I'm still going to win because God's on my side and I'm on God's side. Let's pray. Those of you who are going to serve the table this morning and are going to play, if you could come forward, please. imagine Jesus at the Last Supper looking around that table knowing that Judas was going to betray him knowing that Peter was going to die him knowing that almost all of those disciples was going to flee from him and hide for fear of their lives yet there was no doubt in his heart that for the eleven they'd all become men of God. And he would use them mightily 
even though they're about to fail, even though they're about to be tested to the nth degree, and even though they would be ashamed and embarrassed, but they were going to come through it with the grace of God. And they would rise up in the power of God. And they become great men of God. That encourages me. And I hope it encourages you because all of us is prone to missing it at times and failing at times. And if God was to reject us every time we failed or missed it, oh dear. But in his love and mercy and in his great grace, he comes again and again. And maybe the old enemy has been pressing you sore. Maybe you've become that battle point. Let me encourage you to hang in there. Hold tight to God. Trust his sovereignty. Trust his confidence in you. Know that he loves you. Lord, as we gather at this table this morning, we take these few moments to thank you for Calvary. To realize that we were lost, going to hell, deservedly so. And yet in mercy you came. You sought us out and you saved us. What a gospel we have today. What good news you've given us. And so we think, Lord, of that day upon that cross when you gave your life for us. How your body was marred more than any man. And how your blood was shed for us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so it had to be. And you knew that, and you came, and you freely laid down your life for us so this morning as we partake of the cup and the bread we give you thanks for every mercy you've shown us thank you for so great salvation thank you for your life in us by your Holy Spirit you did not leave us comfortless not like orphans spiritually but you sent your spirit to reside in each of us today so we have much to thank you for. These emblems, Lord, and they're just emblems, but they mean so much when we think of what they stand for. And so as we partake this morning, our hearts are turned to you, and they're grateful and thankful for all that you've done and for all that you mean. This we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.